0: Father, we are so thankful for the many, many gifts that you give us. Father, sometimes we forget that you give gifts for spiritual purposes, gifts that are not explicitly spiritual. And so, Father, as we have thought about this meal that we have sat down to partake, this bread and this cup and the reminder that it is of Christ's body broken for us, His blood shed for us and for our salvation. Father, we are thankful that You created us in such a way that we eat food. Father, we feel hunger and we eat until we are satisfied and we can rest happy. But Father, we're also thankful that We must continue to eat. We must continue to eat in order to be satisfied. And Father, when we think about our physical hunger and how it must be satisfied over and over and over again, may our minds be drawn to the spiritual hunger that all of us have deep into our souls that can only be satisfied with Jesus. And Father, we don't need to be satisfied over and over again because His work is complete for us. He is enough, and therefore, we can be fully and finally satisfied in Him. We need nothing more. Father, we are thankful for that reminder this morning, both for His saving work and for the ongoing spiritual nourishment that He provides. We pray that as we open Your Word, we will see Him this morning, and we will be able to glory in You, our Redeemer. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, Lord. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. You have your copy of God's Word. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 21 this morning. Acts chapter 21. Some of you may be turning in now or have at home the ESV Study Bible. If you remember when that big, beautiful brick came out, uh, it was exciting for a lot of us. It was a brand new study Bible and uh, it was encouraging. I had had as professors, a lot of the people that were writing the study notes for that Bible, the graphics were amazing. I even liked the fonts used for the text block Uh, and I used it for several weeks quite profitably, both for personal Bible study and for uh, teaching prep, but Of all the resources that were promoted, I found one tucked away in the back that nobody ever talked about, but what I found to be one of the most helpful things in that ESV study ball. It was a chart, and it showed every time the New Testament quoted or alluded to some part of the Old Testament. So, if I'm preaching from an Old Testament book, I can easily scan down through there and say, Is there, is there any direct allusion or, or quotation in the New Testament that would help me have a kind of Holy Spirit inspired, inspired commentary on what this passage means? Or as I'm reading through the New Testament, say, Are, are, they, are they alluding to something in the Old Testament that, that, I, that I just am not familiar with and I'm not seeing well? And it, it helps bring your Bible together and see the, the kind of one plan of God at work. But now, many, many years later, I think I would like two more charts. I like that chart, but I would like two more charts. I would like one that shows all the times the Old Testament quotes or alludes to other places in the Old Testament because it does that all the time. And I would like to see a chart just of the New Testament showing all the times that it quotes or references or alludes to other parts of the New Testament. I think I would find those things very, very helpful. And if if such a chart existed for the New Testament, maybe it does and I'm not aware of it, then you will find... This chapter and the succeeding chapters and acts that we're going to look at just all over the place, lit up like a Christmas tree with references. Starting here in chapter 21 through the end of the book, Luke is intentionally drawing connections between Jesus and Paul. And the, the most obvious way that you may catch this, if you're reading from here to the end of the book, it uh, be a good thing to do on, a, on an afternoon. Um... You see Paul, or rather Luke, telling us that Paul broke bread and gave thanks, especially in light of this morning. That immediately sends our minds back to the Gospels and to the same person who wrote Acts, who wrote Luke, who told us that one night Jesus took bread and broke it and gave thanks. It's virtually the same. Words, Luke quoting himself. And that begins to make you think, well, well, what else is he looking at here? And so you can uh, look at commentaries and other things, or you can just read the text, and what you will see here is amazing intentionality of Luke trying to help us see that there were not just types and shadows in the Old Testament pointing back to Christ, but now echoing out forward in history from Christ. People like Paul, who are also a type, pointing us back to Jesus. Four times Luke tells us, about Paul going to Jerusalem, being determined to get there, just as he told us in Luke's gospel, in his gospel, that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem and accomplish the plan that God had for him there. Here in this chapter, like Jesus, once Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he is welcomed. There is great joy and celebration. Like Jesus, he goes to the temple. Like Jesus, he finds himself ultimately opposed by the Jews, seized, beaten, and undergoes a trial. No less than three times, Paul experiences something like a death and resurrection in these final chapters. Three times, he, and he, something happens and everyone around him thinks, he's dead, he's going to be dead, he's done, and he is miraculously saved and comes through it. There are several other allusions that we can, get, that we can pick up on, but you get the point, Luke wants us to see Paul not just as the apostle of the Gentiles, but as one who is seeking to imitate Christ, either by God's providence in his life or by his intentionality in how he lives his life. It's not surprising then that when we read Paul's letters, he will say things like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this morning, as we think about Acts chapter 21, this is what we want to do. We want to look at Paul and say, how is he imitating Jesus? And therefore, how should we be imitating them? So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, we're at Acts chapter 21. Please stand and follow along as I read. Speaking of Paul and all of his ministry team, Luke writes, when we had... Departed from them and set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. In kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we, we, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Then when we had come to Jerusalem, The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law and have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under an oath. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, We sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He had once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. As he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him, away with him. Paul was about to be brought into the barracks. He said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the crowd. And we had given him permission. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Following the emphasis that Luke presents, I think we can see three big ways that Paul's life imitated Jesus' life, and therefore three ways that our lives should imitate theirs. If we're going to do that, if that is our desire, then our lives, are, is, our lives will first be marked by a commitment to, to God's work. A commitment to God's work. We see this in verses 1 through 16. You can look at all kinds of influential church leaders today. You can look at zealous missionaries throughout the years, even martyrs among the early church or even today in some countries like India, but you will find no one ever who was more committed to God's work than God's own son, Jesus Christ. More than anyone, he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart soul, mind, and strength. He did all that the Father commanded him. And though imperfect, not on the same level as Jesus, Paul was nevertheless of the same mind. He lived and breathed faithfulness to God's will and commitment to God's work in the world. And we should be no different. And from this passage, we see that if we're going to do that, if we're going to be committed to God's work, then we must do two things. First, we must follow the Spirit. We must follow the Spirit. Right from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was overshadowed and empowered by the Holy Spirit who directed him and gave him strength for his ministry as the Christ. And when the time came for him to go to the cross, Jesus didn't flinch. He didn't shy away. Instead, he as Luke tells us in Luke 9, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because that is where his work would be complete, at the cross. And in his resurrection, that is why the Father had sent him into the world. Likewise, Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem because that is where God's work for him lay. Back in chapter 19 of Acts, we are told that he resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then in the passage that uh, Pastor Rick looked at back in chapter 20, we saw Paul say this, "...and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem." Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. Well then why are you going, Paul? If you know that's what's happening, why are you going? He says in the very next verse. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Notice the connection there between being constrained by the Spirit and the desire to fulfill his ministry. Paul is committed to God's work. Through the gospel. And when we get to chapter 21, the leadership of the Spirit in his life does not lessen, nor does Paul's resolve. Through prophets, the Spirit explains the suffering again and again and again that is awaiting Paul. In fact, much like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the past who enacted God's prophetic word with visual aids, with visual objects, or even with their own bodies, Agabus grabs and uses Paul's own belt to tell him of his capture that is going to happen in Jerusalem. But the believers misunderstand the point of that warning. They think if Paul's going to suffer, Paul shouldn't go because we love Paul. We care about him. Even Luke here. Luke doesn't say they were doing that. He says we were doing that. The author of the book is including himself saying we were desperate not to have Paul go and be captured. Verse 13 says they were weeping at the thought of him suffering and in prison. So they plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. But they've drawn the wrong inference from what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit is not a spirit of confusion. God doesn't change his mind on a whim. He's not saying a few weeks ago, hey, Paul, you got to get to Jerusalem. you got to get to Jerusalem. And now he says, no, no, don't go to Jerusalem. Hey, did something catch God off guard? No. Did his plans change? No. He is simply reminding Paul, listen, you have got to go to Jerusalem, but this is what awaits you. I think helping Paul to be even more resolved and committed in his own heart, knowing ahead of time, not ever being taken by surprise, this is what awaits you in Jerusalem. Paul understands that in living committed to God's work, he must follow the Spirit. And if he follows the Spirit, he must also embrace suffering. Embrace suffering. That is the second thing that we must do if we are going to be committed to God's work as well. We must embrace suffering. As the Christians in Caesarea are trying to keep him from doing, excuse me, keep him from going to Jerusalem, notice what he says in verse 13. He says, "'What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus.'" You can go back and read about his conversion this afternoon in chapter 9, but Paul knew from the beginning of his life in Christ, from the beginning of his ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles, that he must suffer much. In fact, God says, I will reveal to him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And you know what? Paul embraced that suffering. Uh, not, Not because he was messed up in the head, He somehow enjoyed the suffering, but what he knew was suffering was a key part of how the gospel is going to advance to the world, not just in his day, but in our day as well. Therefore, I want the gospel to advance, so I'm going to embrace the suffering. I'm going to resolve to acknowledge this is going to be a part of my life. But not everybody understands that. Not everybody gets that. Not everybody is so willing to... Embrace and endure suffering. In fact, think about even Jesus in the Gospels when the people um, are not understanding who He is. They have all kinds of things, and um, He asks His disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And they tell Him, and he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And He says, You're exactly right. God revealed that to you. And let me tell you what that means. Because I'm not just the Christ, Son of God, I'm also the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and He's going to be delivered into the hands of His enemies. He's going to die and on the third day rise again. And Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, you got that wrong. That's not what's going to happen. No, 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 no. You are the Messiah. You're not going to die. You know, you're confused, Jesus. So You just said He was the Son of God, the Christ, and now you think He's confused. No, Peter, you are confused. The text says that Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus in turn rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Sometimes, sometimes like the believers here who love Paul and they don't want to see him suffer, or like Peter who loves Jesus and doesn't want to see him suffer, we are nevertheless a hindrance to God's work because our minds are set on the wrong things. Our minds are not set on the things of God, they're set on the things of man, and therefore we are not willing and able to hear the Spirit telling us what to do. And we're not willing to endure the hardship that's going to come from obeying Him. We give in to fear when difficulty and suffering arrives because we are not seeking God's face through His Word and therefore not open to the Spirit's leadership. We run away from suffering rather than lean into it when it's a part of God's work. But we are called to imitate Paul who is imitating Christ. That means when it comes to this area of our life, if that's where we are struggling to obey, if we're struggling to imitate, then we must repent and remember that God is the one who calls us to this. If He is calling us to suffer as we faithfully serve Him, then we know He will sustain us in that suffering. Like a father who picks up his cheerful son on a beach, who is fearful in the midst of this vast ocean that lies behind him. So God is going to pick us up and say, it's okay, I've got you, son. I've got you. We're going to be okay. And so we can press forward into those raging waters, into difficulty knowing God has us. God has us has us in the midst of that suffering. More than that, if we're we're like Paul, if we're like Jesus, we can have joy and hope and strength as we persevere committed to His work. Second, like Jesus and Paul, if we are seeking to imitate them, we should seek to be an encouragement to God's people. We should seek to be an encouragement to God's people. If we follow the example before us, specifically, what does that look like? We can encourage God's people in a lot of different ways. But what does it look like from Acts 21? Well, at least two things. First, it means that we should enjoy loving community. We should enjoy loving community. Uh, This is all over the passage, from from verse 1 all the way through this next section here we're looking at, 17 through 26. You, You think about Paul rolling up to Tyre. He's never been there before. He is... Uh, they for a week and we're not given the details of what that looks like but what we are given is the end of the week and this very tender farewell that takes place on the beach as they're kneeling down in the sand praying for one another. Then there's also the warm reception in Caesarea, as Paul stayed with one of the original deacons, Philip, where where, where, uh, Luke tells us he's Philip the evangelist, so our minds will be drawn back to chapters 6, 7, and 8, and know this is Philip, uh, one of the first deacons, the one who evangelized, not the apostle, although I'm sure the apostle also evangelized. We're told about their tearful goodbye when he left, and then in these final verses when Luke writes about Paul arriving in Jerusalem, verse 17 says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now, just think about this for a minute. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He doesn't have a lot of time. He's trying to make it there. We're told earlier in the book by Pentecost. But he stops in these places and seeks out believers whom he's never met to spend time with them and to encourage them. He's a weakened tire. He's a day in another town. I mean, it would be very easy. You've got a a night. You've got 24 hours in a town. You've come off a years-long mission trip. Um, It's not been easy. You've been uh, sometimes hungry, uh, uh, sometimes alone, uh, sometimes sick. Uh, You've been beaten. Maybe I'll just take the night to myself, right? Maybe I'll check into the inn, go to bed early, and get some rest and refreshment. And what does Paul say? Where's the believers? where's the Christians in this town? Let's find them. Let's spend time with them so that I can encourage them. And and it's a a stark reminder that there is always the temptation that for as much as we talk about Christian community, what it really comes down to is what can the community do for me? Or how can I engage with the community but on my terms? Who Who do I already know who is it easy to get along with, and when is it convenient for me to be with these people? If, if we're not careful, that can be what drives our interactions, not just with, 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 with friends and family, but even in the church of the living God. That was the opposite of Paul's mindset. Certainly, he was encouraged by the church. He was ministered to. We, we see that clearly from his letters, but his mindset was not, what, they, what can they do for me? How is this going to be easy for me? How will this fit in my schedule? His overriding desire was to answer these questions. How can I serve them? How can I love them? How can I encourage them? And we should be the same. We should seek to encourage God's People, we, we should seek to engage with them, to enjoy being with them and fellowshipping with them. And if we're going to go even further in the specifics of imitating Paul, here's what I'll say. As we are together, we should make a point of, verse 19, talking with one another about the things that God has done in our lives. This past week, I was uh, very busy I had a phone call that I thought was going to take a few minutes. It ended up taking 45 minutes. And the actual business part of that, the, the, the part of uh, kind of coordinating some things, happened the last 15 minutes. But the first 30 minutes was me and another member just talking about what is God doing in our life and what is he doing through us as we're seeking to minister and share his word with other people. It was the best 30 minutes of my week. I mean, it was glorious. I wanted more. It's no surprise that when Paul comes and says one by one, here's the things that God is doing, what do the believers do? They rejoice in the Lord, Luke tells us. They are encouraged by what God is doing. And so we should seek to be an encouragement one another by enjoying the the, the kind of loving, sacrificial community that Paul is modeling, centered around our experience of what God is doing in our lives and sharing that with one another. But more than that, More than that, we should also seek church unity. Seek church unity. As we seek to encourage God's people, we should seek church unity. The the welcome and genuine joy of Paul's arrival and his report among the Gentiles quickly turns into something else in these verses. The concern in Jerusalem, as happy as I think they are legitimately for the, the Gentile mission, is also about their brothers according to the flesh, their fellow Jews in Jerusalem and the work of the gospel there. And word has come back from the field, from other Jews that are traveling about this guy named Paul and what he's teaching. They said, verse 20, see brother how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you and that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Some have obviously misunderstood what Paul taught because uh, this is not an accurate presentation of what Paul taught among his people. He did not tell any Jew anywhere to immediately stop living like a Jew, stop keeping the law. He didn't do that. He had no problem with someone raised an Israelite to continue to live as an Israelite, to to still enjoy their ethnic identity as long as they understood all those things were pointing to Christ and were fulfilled in Him. And so that their hope of salvation was not, I was born a Jew and I will die a Jew, but rather, my hope is in Christ alone. Because it is not my righteousness from keeping the law that makes me right with God, but the righteousness of Jesus that I receive as my own by faith as a gift, not something I've earned. That is where my hope is. And so if you had people like that in the first century, Paul says, fine, it's not a problem. What he did have a problem with were Christians who were Jewish telling Gentiles who were now Christian, hey, now you've got to be Jews, now you've got to keep the law. Paul said, no way, Jose, no way, no, because that's not what Christ has called us to. They're Gentiles. They're not part of the old covenant. They were never given the law. It's not for them. And what he saw was this spiritual danger of legalism that would come by saying, you're saved by grace, but you stay saved by works. He says, that's not the way, that's not the way God has formed these things. The Gentiles have everything they need in Christ. Therefore, we will not circumcise their kids. We will not tell them to keep the law. We will not tell them to, to change how they eat. That's not for them. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem apostles and the church agreed with that. And even here in verse 25, it's repeated. Of course, we're not talking about the Gentiles. They say we're talking about the Jews. Are you telling the Jews that they must stop And of course, Paul never told them they had to stop. He would have told them they were free to stop if they wanted. But it was never a requirement as long as they were living with a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what he had done for them. They don't want a stumbling block for the gospel among the Jews. And so they ask Paul to do something about it. And for me... Paul displays a tremendous amount of humility here. Just be totally honest. In my flesh, if that had been me, after all I had done, after all that God had preserved me through, after all I had seen the Lord do among the Gentiles, and I came and this was thrown at my feet, I would have said, What do you want me to do about it? That sounds like your problem. You know what I teach, you know what I don't teach. We're on the same team here. You know that I'm for the gospel. I'm not anti-Jew. I am a Jew. So why don't you straighten them out? Why don't you correct the error? Why don't you take care of this since I haven't been here? That's what I would have said. But that's not what Paul said, was it? They lay this problem at Paul's feet as if somehow maybe he's done something wrong. Maybe not. There's just much we don't understand about what's going on here. We know that this was also the time when this massive offering that had been collected from the Gentiles was delivered to uh, the the leadership of the Jerusalem church to go to alleviate the suffering of poverty among the, the Jewish believers. And Luke mentions nothing about that here. It's all over Paul's letter. So there's a lot going on that we don't know and that's because God has decided we don't need to know. But here's what we do know because it's abundantly clear. Paul absolutely loves Christ's people. He absolutely loves Christ's people. And so he wants to seek to keep Jews and Gentiles united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does exactly what the leaders want him to do in verses 23 through 25. He takes his men and pays for their expenses associated with their Jewish vow under the law and in order to be acceptable in the temple to not defile it under the law Paul needs to be ceremonially purified from his own time among the Gentile peoples and he does that. Now now some have accused Paul of hypocrisy here because the church says very specifically in verse 24 that they want people to see that he lives in observance of the law and strictly speaking that's not true. Paul knows that in Christ he is free from the law. So while he is among the Gentile lands, apart from sin, he can live like a Gentile. He doesn't worry about who he's eating with or how they're eating or what they're eating. Which is a huge stumbling block in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. At the same time, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Why, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. So here's not just humility and love, but true freedom in Christ on display. Not the kind of freedom that says, I am my own man, you can't tell me what to do, I'm free in Christ. But one who says, I am free in Christ to lay aside my privileges, to lay aside my prerogatives, to lay aside my preferences and lovingly serve God's people. That's the kind of freedom that Paul puts on display here. And it's a model to us. Even today there's all kinds of things that threaten the unity of the church. Not many of them deal with Old Testament law observance anymore. But there are some things that deal with what it actually goes down to the core of being a Christian means. Matters of the gospel. Matters of, is Christ fully God and fully man? And on these things, we have to say, there is a hard line. And, and we're, not, we're not moving, we're not budging, because otherwise we, we, we've lost the essence of Christianity. There are other secondary matters about how, what kind of church we are and how we organize ourselves. And, and, and we can still have fellowship, loving fellowship, stay on the same stage and, and preach with brothers who think differently about these things. But that's the tip of the iceberg, the iceberg underneath the water that we often can't see or don't want to talk about is all about our preferences. It's all about our preferences. If some of you were believers and in churches in the 80s and 90s you will have experienced something called the worship wars one of the most ridiculous titles for i've ever heard in my life for something christians at war about worship and you had people on this side who said i don't care about you this is how i want to sing songs that this is how I think it should be done and I'm holding on to this and you're not going to take it away from me. And you can have your own service or you can have your own church but here I stand, I can do no other. We're going to sing my kind of music. You ever see anybody like that? If you were alive back then in church? And it wasn't just old timers. Some of the strongest, loudest voices were people my age ready to give the boot to their grandparents out the church over music. It was pitiful because it was all about preference. It wasn't about Christ. It wasn't about the gospel. It was I, me, me, mine. That's what it was about. That's what it was about. But if we want to be an encouragement to the church, if we're going to seek the unity of the church, then it means we're going to have to follow the example of Paul. It means we're going to have to humble ourselves. It means we're going to have to love Christ's people. And it means we need to, in our freedom, lay aside our preferences knowing that Christ is enough. And that he gives me the grace to love other people more than I love myself. Well, if we're seeking to imitate Paul, who sought to imitate Jesus, the last thing that we will see marking our lives is mistreatment by God's enemies. mistreatment by. God's enemies. We see this in verses 27 through 40. The well-intentioned, the leadership of the Jerusalem church's plan does not go all that well. Jews that we have seen in previous chapters who opposed Paul from Asia are here again in the temple, probably because of the, 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 the holy holidays, and they identify Paul. And they make false accusations about him, stir up the entire crowd, and literally start a riot. And if we are seeking to be faithful Christians like Jesus, like Paul, we need to understand that we're going to have to endure false accusations. We're going to have to endure false accusations. This is the first way that we, at least in this text, should expect to experience mistreatment by God's enemies. We're going to have to endure false accusations. They make a bad assumption that because Paul had a Gentile with him, and was then at the temple, he must have brought that Gentile into the temple where he was not allowed to go. There was a, about a four and a half foot wall that stood between where the Gentiles were allowed to be and where all Jews could enter into the temple complex. And there was literally, we know from, from, uh, from history, writing on there in multiple language that said, if you are a Gentile, if you are a foreigner and you cross this line, you should expect death. That's really welcoming, right? We should put on the church sign, right? If you're, a, if, you're not, if you're not a member and you come in here, you should expect death. No. No. So they have this false accusation that Paul had violated the requirements of the temple and brought a Gentile on the courts, but no one bothered to ask if it was true. Such was was the the just audacity of someone to do that, that they became incensed. The crowd seized Paul. They began to beat him and try and kill him, verses 28 through 29. But, but But in the sovereignty of God and in his providence, Jerusalem was a bit of a powder keg already. It was a very turbulent time, and therefore the Romans were on high alert. And particularly during these, uh, during these uh, holiday times when uh, Jews just come from all over, the numbers of people in Jerusalem would swell, and that meant all of the soldiers would stand a little straighter and stand a little closer and be looking a little more observant. And so it wasn't long before this massive kerfuffle turns into, hey, turn these sirens on, we got something going on down here. And the Romans rush in here, this cohort. But what do they do? They just assume Paul's guilty. They arrest him. They take him away. And and even worse, the guy in charge thinks he's a really bad guy. We're told in verse 38 they think he's this Egyptian terrorist who had recently started a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. You say, what is that about? Well, we don't have time. Just Google search, look in your ESV study Bible, whatever, and you can read about it, Okay. Something that had happened not long before this, and they assume this is Paul. But can, can you imagine any more assumption that's farther off the mark? And yet, as, just as Agabus prophesied, Paul is captured by the Jews and given into the hands of the Romans. We will suffer mistreatment by God's enemies if we are seeking to be faithful to the Lord. And that will often be seen and us having to endure endure false accusations. But when that happens, we must also present a faithful witness. We must present a faithful witness. Again, Paul uh, surprises me, amazes me, sets an example for me. You think about what what has happened to Paul. uh, In my mind, a little bit of a raw deal when he shows up. With the Jerusalem Church, with this all this money and all this excitement from the Gentiles, are like, yeah, but what about the Jews? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta help us with this, Paul. And he thinks he's doing the right thing, and he's seeking to, to unify the church, and 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 he loves all of God's people. And then this, he, I mean, you, you just. I, you don't know did he make con, eye contact first did he see them when they saw him or did he first hear the screaming but he's kind of like oh not you guys again and all of a sudden he, here he is just beating beating and then the Romans have him and then he's in shackles and he's arrested and I'm just thinking like if that was me once I'm safe my, my heart level's going to go down and I'm just going to be like thank you Lord for all of that uh, I'm going to take a break I'm just going to pray I'm going to think about what am I going to do next that's not Paul that's not Paul what, what does he, do? he says, I've got to present a faithful witness. So he says, do do? Uh, uh, I, I beg you, permit me to, to speak to the people. Can I, can I have a minute? And they're like, aren't you that Egyptian terrorist? And he's like, no, no, no. I, I, I'm a Jew. I'm from a very prominent city. I'm a Roman citizen, and, and maybe I can help calm these things down. So he was given permission. And Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. That was to calm them down, to get their attention. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Not, we don't, because you could just get up and leave in a few minutes, but uh, we don't have time to go into the next chapter, which I would love to do and tell you what Paul said, but Pastor Rick's going to cover that. I don't want to steal his thunder, but spoilers. He preaches Christ. He preaches the gospel. He presents a faithful witness, not just generically, but here's how Christ saved me. I was an accuser of Christians. I sought them down to persecute them and even kill them. And Christ saved me. He washed me clean from my sins and made me someone who could serve him and spread good news rather than wrath. All throughout Acts, Paul's faithfulness to bear witness to Christ has led to suffering, but that never led him to stop. He continues to bear witness to Jesus. It reminds me of the song that we just sang a a little while ago, Let the world despise and leave me. They left my Savior too. Is that what we sang? Was that just words to us or did we actually mean that when we sang praise to God? Was that the prayer of our heart? Sometimes we experience these things and we say, man, is it it worth all this? Is it worth it? Maybe I should just be quiet. Maybe just keep my house shut, keep my head down, and, and, and I'll be okay. Well, what... When I have thoughts like that, hopefully we're, we're going to go back to Paul's life and the example that he sets, but but beyond that, hopefully we can look to one another and see the example that, that we have been to one another. Consider the story from someone you may have heard of. His name is John MacArthur. He's a pastor of a large church out in California. Many, many years ago, he writes about speaking at a college campus near a large Jewish community in Los Angeles on the topic the philosophical basis of Christianity. He spoke for an hour. and the last 10 minutes, he used the Old Testament to prove Jesus was the Messiah. And the protesters went crazy. MacArthur says he started getting hate mail. Then obscene phone calls in the middle of the night. Then threats about bombs going off during the Sunday morning service. I, I, to be honest, I can't even fathom the, the decision making then at that point. Um, do, do you say we're going to have services anyway? I mean, I just, uh, the stress of all that, you just think, man, is it is it worth it? Should I have given that talk? Was that the wrong thing to do? I thought I was trying to be faithful, but uh, maybe I should have just kept my mouth shut. Maybe I shouldn't have leaned in that hard. All these thoughts, I don't know if they came to MacArthur, but they would have come to me. You wonder, is it really worth it? Was it worth it? MacArthur says, not long later, one young Jewish man came up to him after a service and said, I heard you speak, and I want to know Christ. Loved ones, it's worth it. It's worth it. For the sake of Christ's kingdom and the advance of the gospel, let us, as God's people, seek to imitate Paul, even as he sought to imitate Christ. Let us be committed to to God's work as we encourage God's people knowing that we will suffer mistreatment by God's enemies. Let's pray and ask for God's help in this. Father, we love you and we are so thankful for your word to us. We're so thankful for the example that we have in people like Paul, but Father, the example that we have in one another as well that we can look to and be encouraged by. Father, we pray that you would help us to continually grow into the people that you've called us to be. That you would continually help us to have the mindset that says, nothing in this world is going to satisfy me. I need Jesus. And in having Jesus, I can go forward into this world despite difficulty, despite suffering, and I can faithfully preach the gospel even as I seek to serve my brothers and sisters, laying aside my preferences for the sake of love in unity, which will in turn allow for more gospel preaching into the world. Now I encourage you to continue praying. Let us silently ask the Lord to help us apply this message individually to each of our lives.